chapter 20. And you might be wondering, well, why are we jumping to the end of the book? <laughs> Shouldn't we be starting at the beginning? Good point. That's a fair point. I'm not going to deny that. So, uh, but here's the reason we're, we're jumping to the end is because uh, there's this one passage at the end of Revelation that talks about uh, the end times, the, the millennium, the thousand years and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's one passage in the Bible, just not even that long of a passage, and it probably has sparked more controversy and conversations than maybe any other single passage in the Bible. I mean, books and books and books have been written debating this passage. So obviously, we're going to solve it tonight, and we're going to figure it out, right? No, of course not, okay? Again, don't, don't put that on me. I can't do that for you, okay? Uh, but, but the reason that we are going to jump all the way to, to the end here is because a person's view of the end times and what they think about the millennium and the return of Christ and all that kind of stuff, it greatly affects how you read the book of Revelation, right? So we'll be reading through the book, and we could come to a passage, and I could say, well, this is talking about this, and if you have a totally different understanding of the millennium, the return of Christ, the end times, you would say, well, no, what you're reading there has to do with this portion of the timeline in which all these things are going to occur. And so, basically, how you view that one situation, the return of Christ, the millennium, is going to completely dictate how you view the rest of the book of Revelation. It's going to completely color. Like, just, just for instance, there's one view um, of, of eschatology. So, eschatology just means a study of the end times. Eschata comes from eschaton, meaning the end or finality, and ology is obviously like study of something. So eschatology, it's the study of the last things, the end times, right? So there's one view of eschatology that literally says that Revelation 4 through basically 20 has nothing to do with the church at all. And if that is your view, then when you read Revelation, that's obviously going to color how you interpret it, right? If you think this has nothing to do with the church, but this is just a prediction pertaining to Israel, well, then that's going to offer a different interpretation and application for you, correct? So we're going to discuss these things. We're going to go through them, and um, we're going to disagree some. But that's okay, because we're just going to study the Word. We're going to have nice, pleasant conversations. No one's going to throw anything at anybody, and we're just going to talk about it, right? That's what we're going to do. So Revelation chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 6. It's just six verses, all right? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay? That's our, our passage. And uh, because we're going to be discussing different views and things like that, trying to make sense of this important passage in Revelation so that we can have a framework to actually interpret the book of Revelation, I'm going to read you a quote. And I want it to be kind of our, our whole motto for how we study the book of Revelation, okay? You ready for this? You can write it down, or you can just try to remember it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Okay? I'm going to read that again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, let's keep that in mind, okay? Because eschatology, would we say that is an essential doctrine of salvation? How you view or your understanding of the end times, is that essential for salvation in Christ? No, it's, it's non-essential. Is it important? Absolutely, of course it is. But is it essential? No. Okay, well, so it's a non-essential, so we have liberty to disagree and still be Christians, so let's be charitable, right? No one in here is going to call anyone else a heretic, right? Can we just on board with that? Like, no matter what view of eschatology you hold to, you can still be orthodox. They are all orthodox positions, and they all try to base their position on the Bible. Can we admit that, right? Again, we want to steel man other people's positions. We don't want to straw man them and just knock them down. We want to give them credit and say that they are trying to make the best sense of Scripture, and so they believe what they believe. So, again, let's be charitable as we discuss this. All right, now we get into the weeds. Charitable, charitable. All right, I thought a long time about how do you even start this? And so let's just, let's do like a, a little timeline, right? So, so here's the cross, and then we'll say like shortly after there was a resurrection, but I don't want to draw a line because this is going to get messy if we, if we start doing even more lines. But let's just do like your basic timeline, right? Here's the cross, and let's say here's the millennium, right? Millennium. Seems pretty simple, right? It's not. There's a lot that goes into it. But, but let's just say this is the millennium, and what we're talking about is the return of Christ. When is Christ going to return? And you have this major event. Well, there, there are really only two options. He can come before the millennium, which would be pre-millennialism, right, on board, before the millennium. Or he could come after the millennialism, the millennium, which would be post, post-millennialism. So there are basically four views, but they all kind of fall within these two broad categories. Jesus is either going to return before the millennium, or he's going to return after the millennium. So on this side, you would have um, dispensationalism, which I'm not going to spell all that out, but dispensationalism, which is a form of premillennialism. And then you also have what's called historic premillennialism, which again is, as you can tell, a form of premillennialism, right? And on this side, you would have the postmillennialists after the millennium. And you would also have what's known as amillennialism, um, which is really a bad name for, for this whole view. 
all millennialism should just be referred to as realized eschatology because this ah here is from the Greek. It's a negation. It means no millennium. And so there's, there's a view that, that they would say like, oh, all millennials don't believe in a millennium at all, which is not true. They just have a different view of the millennium. They believe it's realized now. And so even that would be a form of post-millennialism because Christ is returning after. Now, here's the hard part about discussing all these different things, okay? It's that not only are there are a bunch of different views, it's that the views are very nuanced, even within. Like, there are different forms of dispensationalists. There are liberal forms of post-millennials. There are you know, orthodox, covenantal millennials. There are all sorts of different views, okay? And it's hard to, to speak in general terms because you don't want to paint people with a, a broad brush and get it wrong, right? So, like, for instance, to give you an example, I hate when people assume what I believe rather than just asking me what I believe, you know? So, so people say, oh, you're Southern Baptist. That must mean you think this. And I'm like, you could just ask me, you know, like, oh, you're Southern Baptist. You think deacons should be running the church. No, no. Or you're Southern Baptist. You don't think the church should have elders. Actually, I do. You, you could ask me, like, there are Southern Baptists, but there are all sorts of nuances even within Southern Baptists, right? And so there are dispensationalists, and there's nuances, and the same with all the other views. So I'm going to speak in generalities, and if you're sitting here and you're like, well, I'm not a millennialist and I don't believe that. That's okay. I, I'm, again, speaking in general terms because I can't go into like 30 different variations of this. I mean, unless y'all want me to, but I think, let's just keep it general, right? Let's, you know, not quite surface level, but a little beneath that. So let's just do that and, and we'll, we'll be good. So again, try to think, well, how, how do we start this conversation about the millennium and how do we interpret everything? So I thought, well, what if we just go in, in terms of like order, kind of, right? In, in terms of what to expect. So, so if this is Christ's death and his resurrection, well, the, the first thing that we would say in terms of the views, we have to start with premillennialism, right? Because that's Christ is returning before the millennium occurs. And uh, according to premillennialists, they would say that right before the millennium starts, what happens? Anybody know? According to this view, dispensationalists, premillennialists, what happens prior to the millennium starting? The rapture, yeah. So, and this is very specific too um, with dispensationalists, so we're going to talk about them first. They would say that the rapture happens, but what's in, important to note is it's a halfway kind of thing, right? So they would say that in the rapture, and so you can just rapture here, they would say that Jesus returns Part way to earth. He's going to descend from heaven and kind of come down, descend to the level of basically the clouds, not come all the way to the earth. But he's going to call up the church, and the church will meet Jesus in the clouds, and he escorts them back to heaven. So the church remains in heaven for the duration of the millennium, right? We tracking so far? They remain there for the millennium. Uh, Jesus is uh, going to have this millennium. So, so there's a time of like you know, tribulation here. And actually before the millennium, there's tribulation. We're getting run out of room on our timeline. But there's a seven-year, according to, again, dispensationalists, there's a seven-year tribulation period. Um, you'll have the beast, the antichrist, Satan running around, causing all sorts of trouble. Uh, but then Jesus is going to return after seven years. He's going to come all the way back down to earth at this point. He's going to 
bind Satan, uh, defeat the armies of, of evil, and then he's going to rule on earth, so on earth for a thousand years. And, and we'll just pause right there. Is everybody tracking? This is the dispensational view. There's going to be what is known as, they call it a secret rapture. Anybody know why they would call it a secret rapture? Because Christ isn't coming all the way back down. The, the church is basically disappearing, right? Like people are going about their lives and then people disappear. And, and so it's, it's secret in the sense of like it's completely unexpected. It could happen at any point. You don't actually see it happen. It just happens. Like we could be, I could be mid-sentence right now. And it, so it had been cool though. Could you imagine like <laughs> if that had happened? So I could be mid-sentence. And the rapture could happen, and all the church, true Christians, could disappear to, to meet Jesus in the sky and, and live in heaven forever. Um, so when you think about these different views, dispensational, historic premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, tongue twister, what do you think is the most popular and wide-held view in the church today? Okay, this one, right? Dispensationalism. By and large, I would say a majority, if not the vast majority of the church, holds to this view of eschatology. And it's probably the one you're most familiar with, right? Yeah, so, so that's why it's our starting place. So, so let's, let's get a little bit of background. Not, not only is this the predominant view in the church, it has been since the 20th century, okay? Um, and in premillennial eschatology, it's been around for ever since, you know, Jesus resurrected and ascended, Okay. In fact, historic premillennialism has been the most wide-held view throughout church history. That's different than this, different than dispensationalism, but historic premillennialism has been the most wide-held view throughout church history. And so, uh, an interesting fact, though, did you know that this view, the one that we just talked about, the one that we said that the majority of the church believes today, the one that you're most familiar with, did you know it was started in the year... 1830, by a man named John Darby. He was a Scotsman, a preacher, and a, a theologian. And what's interesting about this is there is not a single record of anything in all of Christian literature and Christian church history to say that anyone ever believed this scheme, so not like not certain aspects, but, but this whole scheme, no one believed that for the first 1,830 years of the church. It's pretty interesting, is it not? Now, does that make it wrong? No. Should it raise concern for investigation? Yeah, I think that's fair. So, so here's an interesting question to consider. How did this brand new theology that was started in 1830 become the most widely held view in the church today and be the one that pretty much every Christian is familiar with. How did that happen? Well, here's how it happened. John Darby created it in 1830, started becoming really popular. A lot of his students then go to America, and they start spreading it. Now, think back to the situation in the early 1900s in America. What was going on? What had just ended not too long ago that America was still trying to recover from? Civil War, right? Life was not easy back then, right? There's another war coming that they didn't even know about at the time. But if you're living in the early 1900s in America, you're trying to recover from the Civil War. 
People were not very educated back then either. Most people were laborers. They would go to school for a little bit, and then they would leave to go pursue a career. That doesn't mean everybody did that. Some people obviously went to college and whatnot. But the vast majority of Americans were just laborers who were widely uneducated. And so, here's what they did. They had their Bible, but they weren't too educated. They wanted to understand it. What was the Bible they were using at the time? King James, right? It's been the most popular Bible since the 17th century. And so, again, you're in early America. You're, you're not very educated. You have a Bible, and you want to know it. You want to know what God says, but you're just having trouble understanding it. Well, a great solution comes out, a new study Bible. And if there's a new study Bible, and it's a study Bible of the KJV, and that's the Bible you use, and it's got notes in there to help you understand it, guess what Bible you're going to be buying to help you understand it? That one. And that's exactly what happened. In the year 1909, and you're not going to be tested on these dates, but if you're just interested in a little bit of church history, it's fun to mark it down. In the year 1909, arguably the most famous study Bible of all time was printed, and it changed the course of Christian theology and church history because it became so popular. In fact, it is still so popular or it was so popular and so important, many people still own this study Bible today. Isn't that right, Mr. McKinney? He owns one. Which one is it called? The Schofield Study Bible. One of the most renowned and popular study Bibles of all time. Schofield was a student, well, I say a student. He encountered the students of Darby and adopted Darby's theology that he had created, this dispensational theology. And Schofield added his thoughts to it and tried to adapt it even more. And because that was the only really King James study Bible at the time, people bought it and that thing spread like wildfire. I mean, it went everywhere, widely popular. It wasn't even revised until about 1950. That's how popular it was and how mainstream it was. Everybody owned one. One of the concerning things with the Schofield study Bible, though, is that uh, it was primarily only Schofield's thoughts and opinions in the Bible. M most study Bibles today have like an editorial team where they'll all contribute and, and do that. But this was primarily Schofield. And so again, think back. If you're early America's 1900 and, and you're not very educated, you want to understand it. If you read anything this man says in an official King James study Bible, are you going to disagree with him? No. You're just going to believe it. You accept it. And, and, and again, just a poll, right? A couple rabbit trails here, but I'll just go off on one. This is why I always caution people with study Bibles in general. Like, I don't have a problem giving them to people, but I always tell them you have to keep in mind the Word of God is the Word of God, and everything under that, the footnotes, that's the thoughts of man, okay? And the thoughts of man are not the Word of God. They need to be examined critically, and they need to be, you know, assessed and things like that. You shouldn't just open a study Bible and read what it says and just accept it uncritically, okay? Uh, you shouldn't accept anything I say uncritically. Check me against the Word of God, because if I'm erring against the Word of God, believe that, not me, okay? Don't accept anything man says uncritically. But that's exactly what happened. They didn't, you know, think about it critically. They accepted whatever Darby had to say or Schofield had to say. And so that's how that became the most popular view in America and in the church. It got so bad that if you disagreed with any aspect of this new theology that was literally started in 1830 and popularized in 1909, 
you could be called a heretic and you could be kicked out of the church if you disagreed with this. That's how prominent. And then the way it made itself into mainstream culture and media to where even atheists know about this kind of stuff today was because of a book series. Anybody know the book series? Left Behind. That's right. A book series, and then they made movies uh, with Kirk Cameron, and then they made one with Nick Cage, I think, and that fell off. And they said, all right, one Left Behind is fine enough for Nick Cage, so that's it. But, but Left Behind is directly based on this theology by Darby. And so that's important to note, right? Like, this is the most popular view in the church today, but it should caution us, and we should be noticing the fact that there's not a single person in all of church history for the first 1,830 years who believed what most people in the church believe today. So that's why we go back to Scripture, right? That's why I say, let's not just take what we've always heard, let's just test it against the Word of God. So, we're not going to be able to get too far tonight. Um, but just some main tenets of, of dispensationalism, and I'm going to be, you know, trying to steel man this as much as I can, and, and I, I would hope that a dispensationalist would say, oh, yeah, that's what I believe, right? So most dispensationalists, one of the key tenets of dispensationalism is they always make a very sharp distinction between Israel and the church. So um, anything in the Old Testament where it says this prophecy was for Israel, they will not recognize any sort of like symbolic fulfillment in the church today. They'll say that is particularly for Israel and Israel only. And so when you get into Revelation and you see certain prophecies, they will say primarily this has to do with Israel and not the church. Um, most dispensationalists believe that the rapture happens sometime before Revelation chapter 4, and that Revelation chapter 4 um, up to chapter 20 has to do with Israel and what's going to happen um, during the time when the tribulation is, is focused on Israel. So they make this, this sharp distinction between Israel in the church, and uh, they also have a very specific, detailed chronology of how the end times events will go. This is, this is the simplest dispensational chart you'll ever see, and that's because I literally can't remember all the things to put up here, so just to be honest, but Google dispensational end times chart, and you'll see there's, I mean, there's pages of arrows and things like this of all the kind of stuff that has to happen, so they have a, a very detailed um, understanding of that, and, and, and particularly of what the different things mean. So like, for instance, the tribulation, they would say that's primarily focused on Israel, on the Jews, that Jesus raptures the church up, and they're in heaven, and the tribulation time is to prepare Israel to receive King Jesus, so that when he does appear after the tribulation, they will recognize him as the Messiah, and be prepared to believe in him and welcome him as their king. And then that time starts the thousand-year reign on earth where Israel is mostly predominant. I believe most, um, most dispensationalists, and again, this isn't all, so you could be a variation, but, but most dispensationalists will say that the church even remains in heaven during the millennium and that the Jews are the ones who reign on earth with Christ as well as those who become believers during the millennium reign um, again, you might be a different variation, but that's what's mostly in the literature today. And, uh, and during the, the millennium, at the beginning, Satan is bound, and he's bound for the thousand years where he's unable to deceive the nations. And then uh, after that time, there's a, a short um, letting loose of Satan, 
there's a final defeat, and then that leads to resurrection and judgment and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the other thing to, to note really about dispensational theology is they're very literal. They're always literal in their interpretation. And um, you remember, I think it was two weeks ago we asked this, like, should we interpret the Bible literally? And it was kind of a trick question because the answer was yes, whenever the Bible intends to be interpreted literally, because there are times when it doesn't, like when it says God has wings or God is a rock, like he's not really a rock and he doesn't really have wings, but so you don't need to interpret that literally. But, but dispensationalists, when they look at Revelation, almost everything in it, despite the fact that it is apocalyptic, despite the fact that it's prophecy, um, they'll interpret it literally. So when they see 144,000 that are sealed, they'll say that's literally 144,000. Could be. That's a fair interpretation. Um, when they, they see certain things that are to happen, they'll say that's literal. There's no, um, thing, like Babylon, they'll say that is literally Babylon. That's a, another fair interpretation. It could be, might not be, but it is a fair interpretation. Uh, the thousand years, they'll say that is a literal 1,000-year period. Again, it could be, might not be. It's a fair interpretation. But these are where they're basing their views. They want to interpret it literally. Those are the key distinctions. Now, I want to look very quickly, because we don't have a lot of time. I actually thought I was going to cover, like, most of the end times views tonight. So I'm an optimistic person. I'm not a post-mill person, but I'm an optimistic person. So, uh, yeah, and just to, you know, there's, so if we're thinking, like, disp and uh, historical and amill and post-mill, I told y'all before, like, these are the four main views, and it, it, like, throughout my Christian walk, I have held to three out of the four of these views. So, like, you should be willing to change your view if you're convinced by Scripture. Like, I started out here, and then I went here, and then I went here, and then some days I'm here, and then some days I'm back here. Never here, but, you know, <laughs> back and forth between these two on any given Wednesday. So, <laughs> you should be willing to just say, I'm trying to make the best sense of Scripture, and, you know, if that means I need to change my view, I'm willing to do that. So I want to look very quickly, uh, because we won't get into too much, of this, this idea of, of the rapture. And particularly this idea of what's known as like a secret rapture, where Christians disappear. They're, they're called up to meet Jesus halfway in the sky, and then he escorts them back uh, to heaven so that the tribulation can start on earth. <clears throat> now, every end times view believes in the rapture. Can we, let's just get that out there now. But not every end times view means the same thing when they say the rapture. So they all believe in it. They just don't believe the same thing about it. So where does this idea from a rapture come from? Anybody know off the top of your head? Thessalonians. Very good. Yeah, all right. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is what it says in verse 16. It says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. That's where the idea of the rapture comes from. It's the, the main rapture passage in the Bible. And you can, you can see where the view comes from, right? Jesus will descend, and we will be caught up in the sky with him. We'll meet him there. 
Um, and the word rapture, it comes from this passage, kind of. It, it actually comes from the Latin Vulgate. So uh, Latin Vulgate was just the, the main Latin Bible for a very, very long time. And that phrase, cult up, there, is actually the, the Latin word rapio, uh, which is where you can see we get the word rapture today. And so you're thinking, oh, where'd the word rapture come from? It, it came from the Latin Vulgate. And, and so that's where uh, we get the word rapture and the idea that we will be called up in the sky. But then there's another uh, idea that comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 52, which talks about how we'll all be changed in what? Do you remember the, the phrasing there? The, the twinkling of an eye, right? It's, so it's this, it's this immediate thing, right? It's something that happens very quickly. We're changed and, and made different in the twinkling of an eye. And, um, and so you see this idea. Others will often appeal to, uh, there's a passage in Matthew 24. If you just want to write that down, you can reference it later. But you know this passage in Matthew 24. It talks about how two men are going to be out in the field, right? One's going to be taken. One's going to be left behind. Two women are going to be uh, working, and one is going to be taken, and one is going to be left behind. And so there's the idea that people are just going to disappear when the rapture happens. Again, notice how all of these things, they are basing them on Scripture. So even if you disagree with them, and that's okay if you do, notice that they do have a scriptural basis for it, and they are seeking to ground their views in Scripture. Can we be charitable and admit that? Because it's easy when you disagree with something to be like, oh, that's ridiculous, right? Give them credit. They're basing it on Scripture. All right? So, what do we say about this? Well, again, we just said they're basing it on Scripture, so good for them. That's what you should do with every view. A couple quick critiques, I would say. Um, and again, I'm not trying to lead you one way or the other. You can come to whatever view you want. Again, like all of these, these are orthodox positions. If you are one of these four and you believe Jesus is the Messiah and you've trusted in him for salvation, you're going to heaven. Good job. Like, that's great. You could be any one of these four. And again, notice, I have been three out of the four. So I'm going to offer critiques. I'm not trying to push you one way or the other. I'm just going to offer some critiques and let you evaluate as well. My, my main critique of, of really this whole scheme of dispensationalism really comes back to the fact that it was started in 1830. Um, it's concerning to me that no one throughout church history up to that point had thought of these things and, and put them together and articulated them and believed them, especially when you consider the people who were predominant in, in church history. You think about Luther and Augustine. You think about even the early church fathers. I mean, you think about uh, Athanasius and Christosom and some of these guys. Like, no one was believing this for the first 1,830 years of the church. That's always dangerous. That's my main critique of N.T. Wright as well, by the way. Like, I'm I, I'm going to show my cards on that. I'm not an N.T. Wright fan. Uh, I think he's wrong on pretty much everything. But he tries to be novel all the time, and it's dangerous to be novel, especially when it comes to theology, because that tends to lead towards heresy. Not saying this is heresy at all. It's Again, we've shown where they base it in Scripture, but what I am saying is you should be wary of novel things in theology. Okay. Um, the other thing that I, I think needs to be taken into account here. If you'll flip in your Bibles, you have them open to Revelation. Flip back to chapter 1, okay? I want you to see something. Revelation chapter 1, this is the very beginning of the book. And, and again, keep in mind, the idea here, as you're turning, is that Jesus is not going to return fully to earth at this time. 
he's going to return partway. The church will disappear and then meet him in the sky where he'll escort them back to heaven and they'll be, okay? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, or let it be. Even so, let it be. Now, what do you think is, is, is the reason I bring up that verse in particular? Yeah, because it says that when Jesus returns, he says, behold, I'm coming. He's coming with the clouds. And it says what? Every eye will see him. So that kind of at least offers a critique. I'm not saying it disproves it because obviously there are smart dispensationalists like, oh, I've never seen that verse. Like, No, they can account for it. But I'm saying it is at least offer a critique that says if Jesus isn't coming all the way back, if he's just stopping in the clouds and the church is getting called up to meet him there, it seems like not every eye is going to see him, right? So every eye will see him, and the nations understand the significance because did you see it said that they're going to wail on account of him? In other words, the unbelievers at the time of Christ's return who deny him and make fun of Christians and say we're ridiculous for believing as in Jesus as the Messiah, as God in the flesh, he's going to appear, and they're going to know in that moment, oh no, we were wrong. We were wrong for making fun of them and rejecting the gospel, and now he has come, and it is too late. The nations are going to wail when Jesus returns because they're going to see him and they're going to know, not because they're going to see a bunch of clothes laying on the ground and wonder what is going on here. I have no idea, okay? Um, the other thing to, to, to remember, remember in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that when Jesus returns, he's going to return with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. That's kind of hard to keep secret, is it not? I mean, if he's going to return with all this fanfare and noise, it seems like it's going to be hard to wonder what's going on here, that he's going to be visible and it is going to be something noticed by all people. Uh, another little critique I would offer there is I, I do think it tends to shift the New Testament hope um, because... What a dispensationalist is looking forward to next, and, and I don't mean like, oh, they're hanging all their hopes on this, but, but they anticipate the next cosmic event to be the rapture of the church. Again, that's fair, that's within their, their right, and they base it on scripture. But, but I think that shifts the New Testament hope because you never see Paul or John or Peter or Luke or the author of Hebrews ever saying, and wait for the rapture. They're always pointing people to the return of Christ, right? He's coming. He's coming soon. Wait for his return. Soon he's going to appear. Soon he's going to make all things right. This is the hope that he's coming with. And we're going to be raised to new life. We're going to have these glorified bodies. It seems like all their hope is in Jesus' visible bodily return to earth, not looking forward to the rapture. In fact, the book of Revelation uh, literally ends with Jesus saying, surely I'm coming soon. And John responds. I love reading Revelation because John has these responses like we just read where he's like, hey, they're going to well, even so, let it be. Well, John responds to Jesus and he says, amen, come Lord Jesus. So, so notice that none of the biblical New Testament writers are ever saying, Lord, 
take us away from this place. Get us out of here. God, rapture us now. Let us be away from this place. It's always, Jesus, come and be with us. Come and make things right. That's in his prayer. Jesus said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Your kingdom come. So, so the, the Christians in the New Testament are never writing saying, get us out of this place. They're saying, Jesus, empower us to make this place look more like your kingdom and more like your will is being done on this earth. So, so I think it does tend to shift the New Testament hope a little bit to hoping for a rapture in the removal of the church rather than the return of Christ and him being the, the conqueror for the church. And so that's just one thing. Um, the, the other little critique very quickly, we'll get through this. That'd be fun. <clears throat> is, is that the, the Latin word for rapture that, that we get the word from there, uh, it does mean to, to like to remove or get called up, but, but it's actually interesting. If you look at the Greek word, which is more important than the Latin word, can we agree on that, right? The, the Greek word is more important than the Latin because the Bible was written in Greek. It was inspired in Greek, so Greek is way more important than English or Latin. So the, the Greek word there. It's, it's an interesting word, and I think Joseph has done some work on this as well. For 1 Thessalonians 4, didn't you do something with this? Okay, misremembering, that's fine. Well, you'll, you'll get there. We're, we're still training him, okay? We're training him. But, but the Greek word, uh, the word in Greek there, it was used to describe what would happen when a, a king or a dignitary was coming to a town. And what would happen is that people from this town would actually leave and they would go out and meet that king about halfway to when he was getting to the town. They wanted to meet him there to welcome him. That They were excited. And then, interestingly, the word is used to describe not only that, but what they would do then is they would return and they would escort the king back to their city. So it wasn't they go out to, to meet the king and then they just stay there or they go somewhere else. They go to meet the king for the purpose of being the ones to escort him back the city. That's the word that's used here in Greek, that the church is being called up to meet Jesus there, but they're also returning to the earth, escorting Jesus to the earth, where he's going to show himself to be the Messiah and the King. And then one final thing, and we'll end with this, and uh, again, we'll just pick up next week because we just keep on going. But uh, the other thing to keep in mind here, and this is really interesting study for you to do, we mentioned that passage from Matthew, Matthew 24, if you want to write it down, where, you know, you've got the two people and one of them disappears and one's left behind, right? Well, that needs to be interpreted in light of the other parables that go with it, like the one from Matthew chapter 13, if you want to write that down. The famous parable of the weeds, right? You know this one. A, a man, a master of a house goes out and he's planting some wheat in his field. And as he and his laborers go in, his enemy comes, and what does the enemy do? He sows weeds in the midst of his wheat. And when it finally starts to grow up, they go and look, and the servants are kind of cheeky, and they're like, hey, uh, can't afford good, good wheat these days? I mean, did you not plant some good seed? And he's like, no, no, I did. This is an enemy, and he has sown this, these weeds to, to be against us, right? And they're like, well, what do you want us to do? You want us to go and, and pick, all, pick out all the, the weeds? And he's like, no, you might mess up. You might get some wheat. He's like, let them both grow into the end, right? They're both going to exist into the end. And he says, and then what we're going to do is we're going to, when we can tell the distinction between the wheat and the weeds, we're going to gather the weeds first and we're going to throw them into the fire. And then when Jesus interprets this parable, he says, this is how it's going to be at the end. 
there's going to be believers and unbelievers. They're going to exist into the end. And then the Son of Man is going to send his angels, and he's going to snatch people. Who's getting snatched? Not the Christians. It's the weeds. Those are the people who are snatched, according to Jesus in this parable. The angels are going to come. They're going to gather the unbelievers, and then they're thrown into the lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when you think about that, and then you read this other parable where one's disappearing and one's staying, well, the last time we read that in Matthew, the ones who were disappearing, who were being taken, weren't the Christians, were they? The ones who were left behind were the Christians. And the ones being taken were the unbelievers who were going to be escorted away to final judgment and in the lake of fire. So, there's just a couple things to think about when it comes to this idea of dispensationalism and, and, and really the rapture. That's the only thing we touched on tonight, all right? So I, I didn't touch on any of the other aspects of dispensationalism, really. And um, we'll get into more stuff next week because what we want to do is we're in Revelation 20 and we want to see, okay, what's the order of events? Well, we have to start here because according to the dispensationalism and premillennialism, it's a, it's a rapture. But the next thing we read in Revelation 20 is that Satan is bound, right? After the, this time period starts, Satan is bound for the duration of the millennium. Seems pretty simple, right? Come back next week. We'll have to talk about it. So, um, I know that's a lot of information, but I hope you see the importance of not just accepting what you've always been told or what's popular or what's going around, but examining it with Scripture, trying to make the best sense of Scripture, and also kind of knowing the history of where these things started and originated. Okay? All right, Michael Stevenson, how about close us in prayer?